Well, let me welcome you again to Church of the City. Um, if you have not um, been here before, this is your first time, man, really grateful to be with you this morning. Grateful to be just here, uh, not because the building is unique or special unto itself, but simply because we have the opportunity to, to be in the same place at the same time. Uh, and that is profound, uh, if you think on it too hard. The fact that we cannot accomplish anything um, as a community, whatever community we're a part of, um, unless we're together, um, there's something profound about being in the same space. So thank you for being here this morning and being gathered around Jesus collectively. Uh, do me a favor, if you would, at some point uh, in the rest of our gathering, there's a white card on your seat or next to you. If you shuffled it, please fill that out, um, especially if you're, if you're fairly new here, just for, for way of being in contact with you. Um, and, and there's a few different options on that card about contact. And if you want to be contacted, if you have questions and how you'd like to be contacted, please uh, just jot on there. If you have anything you want to write on the back, uh, whether it's something you've noticed, something you're questioning something that you uh, just want prayer for, please uh, note that and drop an offering at the end of our gathering. Um, our, our staff and pastoral team takes that really seriously, um, and we genuinely uh, want to be a part of your journey as a human being and your journey in faith as you lean into following the ways of Jesus. Now, as I, as I think on um, what this community is, and I, as I think about in light of where we are in the scripture um, and where we're headed uh, together collectively, I've just been reflecting a bit. I spent the week, uh, this last week, down in California, and so whether you like it or not, you kind of get me in vacation mode. Um, I just flew, flew back up here last night, and um, as, I, as I've been trying to get my brain in gear, I was actually, my wife is still in California, and we were texting last night about... She's asking you, are you feeling like you're kind of in the rhythm of things and ready for, for Sunday? I'm like, yeah, in one way. <clears throat> and then in another way, no. Um, and as, as this morning, kind of thinking about it, like this morning, um, our setup team was unreal. Like we were ready with our setup 45 minutes before uh, we typically are ready. It was like, well, what do we do with ourselves now that we're kind of all hanging out? And I just felt like I was in this very healthy, good place. And, and, this whole week, I've been thinking about that and what rest does for the body and for the mind and for the soul. And from that, I've been reflecting on our church, on our church community, um, and what's going on uh, in this group of people um, that I'm, I get the privilege of being a part of. And I've said this before, um, but this week was, was really, it, it was quite obvious to me that this is truer than I ever believed to be, that I am convinced that I, I would not be the person I am without you, without this church. And it's to this extent, I'm not sure I'd be following Jesus if it wasn't for this church community, if it wasn't for what God's doing in and among this group. And here's what I mean. that We, we have some kind of cliche things that, and I say we, I mean I, that I say as far as like who we are and what we are. Um, and so you can have to go with it because I'm the person on the stool with a microphone at the moment. But the... The, the identity of who we are and who we're aiming to be um, is entirely wrapped up around Jesus and around the way he lived life, the way he operated, the way he functioned. And some of the cliche kind of things that have emerged from that for us, um, they aren't cliche in their meaning. But for us, um, we, we aren't a church that's just simply for wealthy people or poor people. We're not a church that's for men or for women. We're not a church that's for gay people or straight people. We're not a church that's for brown people or black people or white people. We're not a church for Democrats or Republicans. We are a church for humans who are broken, 
and looking for hope, period. Now, that concept is straight from Jesus, and, and I, I so thoroughly believe that. And then when that ends up focusing itself on me, I really struggle. When, when I am recognizing in me that I am a broken human who's looking for hope, um, I, I, I really take pause. And as I find um, myself reflecting this last week, as I found myself reflecting and thinking about you and thinking about what God's doing, um, the word that continued to come to mind for me is magical. There's something magical about a group of people committed to the ways and the teaching and the hope of Jesus on an individual level and on a collective level. And for, for us, like the reality of that coming to life, the reality of the way of Jesus finding its way, infiltrating its way into the way we think and the way we feel and the way we hope and the way we act and the way we treat people, it begins to alter us, to change us, transform us. And it's, it's oftentimes in slow kinds of ways. And as we've been leaning into a section of scripture where Jesus begins unfolding what that change might look like, and as we come to a close of this section, for me, as, and, and this is me being very, trying to be as transparent as humanly possible without making this about myself, I'm, I'm confronted with the reality that my Christian experience in many ways over the last couple decades doesn't look an awful lot like the way of Jesus. But often my Christian experience looks like something that I've made it out to be that I've created. And when I say that I, I think that I'm not sure I would be a Christian today doesn't mean I don't think I would be in ministry or in a church. I think I would be in my own created kind of world of what I have made Christianity out to be, what I've made church life out to be. And what God is doing among you and among me and among us, I think is He's, he's ironing out a lot of those wrinkles. He's shedding off a lot of the pieces that we have over time accumulated and said, this must be true because I was told it's true. When in fact, oftentimes it has nothing to do with the way of Jesus and might even run against the grain of the way of Jesus. Are you tracking with me? The fact is that this church is very imperfect, that you are very imperfect, as am I. But the attempt, the kernel, the, the, the significant thing, the substance of what this church community is, is an attempt to wrap ourselves around Jesus of Nazareth. And oftentimes that is very disturbing to the created religious order that we maintain. Now, granted, as a church, as a group of people who are English-speaking, um, predominantly English-speaking, we are... Um, we meet together in Portland, Oregon. Culturally, we are um, very shaped by a heritage that we call uh, America um, and by a country that has been established. Uh, we just celebrated its establishment. Um, those things are things we can't change, nor would we want to. We live with those realities, we embrace them, and we ask the question, how do we live the way of Jesus in light of our particular stories? our narrative, our culture, our society, our country, our state, our city. And as that begins to do its work on us, 
We have to be open-handed. We have to be open-handed in the sense of giving up what is incompatible with what we see in Jesus. Because this kernel of wrapping ourselves around Jesus isn't, we're going to wrap ourselves around Jesus and the American narrative. We're going to wrap ourselves around Jesus and the American church. We're going to wrap ourselves around Jesus and our form of religious duty. We can't have Jesus and anything. The point at which we add anything is a point at which we diverge from Jesus himself. And so this section that we've been in, if you've not been tracking with us, let me catch you up to it. We're at this teaching section early on in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, it's his first robust sermon in the book of Matthew, where his close friend, Matthew, one of his disciples, is writing down for us what he witnessed Jesus say and do. And this is the first sermon in, in length that he is unpacking with his audience in writing. He takes up significant space in order to do so. And, and, it, and as this emerges, what, what Matthew helps us see is that Jesus has become a curiosity to a bunch of people in a place called Galilee, which is where Jesus grew up, and it's where largely he spent a huge amount of his ministry. And up until this point, all of his ministry has been focused in this region. And it's rural, it's farm area, it's fishing villages around the Sea of Galilee. And along the way, Jesus has been telling people the kingdom of heaven is showing up. It's right here in front of you. The king is here, and therefore, the kingdom came with it. And he's doing miracles, and he's saying things that are making people curious. And all of a sudden, a crowd begins to, to emerge and follow him. And as they begin to follow him in this rural place, I mean, imagine being out in the sticks and having an oklos, the word in Greek, a multitude of people arrive. Jesus sits down, and he has them sit down. And he begins to expand on this idea of what the incoming kingdom of God looks like on earth. And he starts with this section, and you've heard it before, this blessing section. The section where he, he repeats the same kind of phraseology, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. We call it the Beatitudes um, and the word beatitude out of Latin means nothing to us in English. We don't use it for anything other than this section of the Bible. So let's call it what it is. It's a blessing section. And Jesus begins as a teaching rabbi. He begins to, to infiltrate the minds and the hearts and the lives of the people sitting on that grassy knoll of some kind over the Sea of Galilee on this particular day with blessings. And surprisingly so, he doesn't say, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the wealthy, blessed are the very religious. He says almost the exact opposite. Through this whole thing, it's startling and surprising who he points at to say, you are the epicenter of the kingdom of God. You who are poor in spirit. You who have lost something and are mourning that loss. You who are seeking the justice of the people around you. As he unfolds what his kingdom is, I can imagine sitting in that field questioning, like, am I mishearing what this person is saying right now? Because it's so, it's, it's the part that's so far from the party line of the people who hold power and control that it would have to be surprising. It would have to be shocking. And as we get to the end of this section, it's, it's just, in my mind, I mean, as, as we've gone through it this time, and we taught on this section when we first started Church of the City, uh, again, four years ago. 
As we sat in this very room as a young church start, as a young group of people trying to figure out what is Jesus doing with us, and I didn't catch the gravity at the time of the way that Jesus builds through this blessing section. The way that he builds concerning the kind of individuals who find themselves at the center of his kingdom. Because I think I was still going through a different stage of processing my past experience around Christianity. I was holding on to more firmly my version of being a Christian over and against Jesus' version of being in his community and being in his kingdom. And at this point, at the end of the section, Jesus says something that above, I think, everything he said so far is more startling than, than anything. It's more surprising. This should have driven people away from him and instead drew them closer to him. If a Bible, go ahead and open it. We are in Matthew chapter 5. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. And I'm just going to keep this on the screen the whole time that I'm teaching this morning so you have, have it to reference. The very last blessing that Jesus puts on the table as he opens up to his people or potential people about who he is and what he's doing is this. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way you persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, on first blush, like many of these, this seems like a fairly benign kind of statement. Um, in fact, almost in one way kind of expected, if you think of it. Um, it, is, it is notorious that people who hold a, a, a view of the world like the Jewish community or Christian community in America or, or whatever, whatever group you can think of, that we, we would understand that that's not going to always be the view that everyone around us holds. It may not be the popular view. And so there's always going to be a certain amount of um, necessary nod to the fact that people might, might get angry or frustrated with the fact that you hold a particular view. That's not new. Not new at all. In fact, Jesus here even references um, something that's been going on for a long time. He says to the people who have gathered on the hill, blessed are you when you are persecuted because of righteousness. You're like the prophets. You're like the people of old who spoke God's word to God's people. And when they did that, they were harmed for it. See, what we do when, when we hold a particular view um, that may not be popular is we try to align ourselves with being on the right side of right and wrong. And if we're on the right side of right and wrong and hold that view, then we can stomach the fact that people might harm us for it. They might get angry with us. They might write us off. They might physically do something to harm us. And what we do is we, we put ourselves in a camp of saying, well, I'm doing the right thing, therefore that's okay. I'll take that punishment on myself. And that's actually a really noble kind of position to hold, that I'll hold a value and virtue and a set of ways of doing things, even if it brings harm to me or the people around me. The issue is we, we typically write our own version of who we are and who the people are who are opposed to us. Here's what I mean. When Jesus says, you're in league with the prophets uh, when you're being harmed because of your faith, uh, because of doing something right, um, instantly we start mapping out in our minds, and as I'm sure the people listening to Jesus did first as well, we start mapping out who the different groups of people are. Well, I'm like the prophets. 
I, I am on the good side of history. I am on the side that was saying the right thing and doing the right thing, even though it wasn't popular. And therefore, by sitting on this grassy knoll, listening to Jesus, I'm in that camp as well. Clearly, I'm here and others aren't. So people who would be upset with me for doing that, people who'd be upset with me for following Jesus, people who'd be upset for me, with me for coming at 10 a.m. to a ballroom in downtown Portland, Oregon, um, to be in a Christian community, well, you know what? I'm like the prophets, and I'll take that persecution on. Problem is, we made an assumption along the way that may not be true. We made the assumption that we are the people that Jesus is talking about who are like the prophets. When in fact, we very well may not be. Just by sitting and listening to Jesus, or just by coming to church, does not make us the kind of person who Jesus is talking about. We assume, because we're in earshot, that clearly we are. We are the people of God. We are the community of Jesus. We are the righteous. Therefore, we stand on some kind of moral high ground and can take on the harm and abuse that others might point our direction. But the question that has to be asked before we can assume that we're part of the group of people who Jesus is talking about is quite simple. Are we the people who Jesus is talking about? Now think about this for a moment. Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of righteousness. And this is the second time this has come up in the blessing section. Jesus already talked about righteousness. And if you want to go back and listen to that podcast, it's on our website, you can do it. But let me give you the cliff note version of what this word means in its original context and in its original language. Remember, the Bible is not written in English. It's a translation, and often cases, a translation of a translation. It came through the Latin in many cases. Now, we have very good manuscripts of the original Greek documents. Matthew, we have phenomenal documentation of the original writings that Matthew put down on papyrus for people to understand about Jesus. And he chooses a word here that's a common word, a religious word, righteousness. Dikaiosune is the word. And this word, righteousness, oftentimes, in, especially in the American English, has more to do with personal morality than anything else, but that's not the way it's understood in its original time and language. This word righteousness is the same word for justice or rightness. The concept of right relationship with another individual, another party, it'd be used in contract law. To keep a contract with another person is to keep it righteous is to keep it right, to keep in right standing with another person. And when it was violated, when a contract is violated, then there is a certain amount of just cause that must be done. And it's usually written in that contract. We call that justice. When there's a violation, then it has to be corrected, it has to be righted. This is the concept of this word. It isn't just a singular myopic, singular view of your personal choices, although that's part of it. It's much broader. It has everything to do with the whole of our relationships, which means our community. That when Jesus refers to righteousness, oftentimes he has two things in view. Our righteousness in relationship with God and our righteousness in relationship with others. And if you remember back on that passage as we talked about it, 
I pointed us towards several passages across Scripture, one of which comes up later in Matthew, where Jesus gives us a picture of the day of judgment, when Jesus is standing in front of the world and divides the world into two groups, sheep and, and goats. And he says, the sheep, you, you've done well. Welcome, welcome into my, to my rest, because you clothed me, and you fed me, and you, and you took care of me when I was sick, and you came and visited me when I was in prison. They asked, when did we do that? And he said, when you did it to any of the least of these, you did it to me. And he says, away from you who didn't love me and take care of me. And they ask, well, when, when didn't we do that? And he says, when you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. It's not the only measuring stick that we see in light of Scripture, but one of the ones that comes out of the mouth of Jesus is the way that we relate to the people around us, the way we love the people around us or choose not to love the people around us. In the economy of the kingdom of God, our relationship with righteousness is not just about being people who adopt a moral set of values personally and hold them close to our chest. In the economy of God, what we see unfolding in the way of Jesus, in fact, every single one of these blessings has an other-oriented kind of view. I've been, I've been struggling with this for some time. And so this is, this is the first time in public that I've put this out here. I've had this conversation on several different levels with different people, um, scholars and friends who are just casually working things out through the scriptures. But I have a, a, a thesis idea um, when, in light of what we see in the Bible. We have this, this whole section in the Old Testament we call the law or Torah, 613 laws. And they were the moral code for the people of God, for Israel, given directly from God to his people. As we look through that moral code and these do's and don'ts, this list of things to do, and then we look in the New Testament where we see an, a reinterpretation of it, where Jesus says, I've told you, um, don't kill each other. Uh, or you've heard it said, don't kill each other. I say, if you're angry, you've already committed murder. You've heard it said, do not uh, commit adultery. I tell you, if you lust, then you've already done that. Jesus is trying to move it into the heart level, into the way that we actually operate internally, not just the way our hands and bodies function in the world. So we get this new kind of interpretation of the old kind of system, and then some new additional perspective on it with some new religious duty attached to it. Here's my thesis, that whether it's Old Testament law or New Testament interpretation of that law in light of Christ, there is not a single imperative, command, not a single aspect of being righteous that doesn't have a communal implication. There is not one thing that we are told to do or refrain from doing in the scriptures where the weight, and I would even say the majority of the weight, has to do with somebody other than you. Don't lust. That's, that's, a, that's a really high calling. Don't turn someone else into a sexual object in your mind and, and hold on to that in a fantastical kind of way. Well, it's good for you not to do that, but it's imperative for the other person you don't do that. Because you know what happens when you do that? You objectify them. They're no longer human. They become something other than what they are. It's communal. It's not just about your personal morality. Your personal morality is great. It's fantastic. It's there, but it's there to protect the other person. Don't get angry at another person, even internally angry. Have you ever been angry with someone and not had it affect the way you treat them? Ever in your life? Never. Anger finds its way out, even if we don't express it in an aggressive kind of way. We have a term for it, passive-aggressive. The majority of you as Americans are passive-aggressive people. It's part of our cultural normal. The fact is, and I, I would, I'm inviting you into this conversation, 
Is there anything in Scripture that you can see that we can find? Is there any imperative laid out in 613 laws in Torah or any interpretation of that in light of Christ that doesn't have a communal implication? And my answer so far is no, I haven't been able to find it. But the righteousness that Jesus is talking about here has everything to do with the way we treat other people in light of our personal morality with God. Blessed are you who are persecuted because you are committed to this communal kind of rightness. Blessed are you persecuted because you're willing to enact justice where you see injustice. Blessed are you who are committed to the rightness of the kingdom of God coming to earth and finding its footing in Portland, Oregon, and you're going to be persecuted for it. See, a lot of us wear the badge of persecution. Man, those people who don't, you know, they don't understand my family, doesn't understand why I'm a Christian, they don't understand why I do what I do, they don't understand why I go to church. We take on persecution for a lot of reasons that are unimportant to Jesus. You think Jesus really cares whether your family likes it or not that you show up at church on Sunday morning? Or because you have a Christian tattoo or bumper sticker that says people are going to hell? There's a good reason for them to be angry on that one. The fact is, in many ways, the American Christian church, we, collective, not saying them, we, us, people who embody the way of Jesus and who culturally are American. We have taken on persecution for a lot of horrible reasons that have nothing to do with the way of Jesus. They have nothing to do with being people who actually look like the flesh and bones version of God walking on earth. To think about this, And Jesus' connection with the prophets becomes even stronger. Do you know who the prophets were condemning? The leaders of Israel. The people of Israel. They were God's mouthpiece telling God's chosen people, you're not doing what you ought to be doing. You're not being who you ought to be. Do you want to know what the scathing indictment against Israel was? They were not taking care of the immigrant. They were not taking care of the poor. And they were not taking care of the widow. They replaced doing what they were told to do in Torah. There there are only four categories of people to be taken care of in the whole of the Old Testament. The immigrant, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. And it's repeated over and over and over again. And you get into the writing prophets, and you want to know what's in the indictment against them over and over and over again is? They aren't doing that. And they replace it with the sexualization of their religion. They adopted the religion of other people that was highly sexualized and said, I want pleasure, therefore, we're going to follow that God. They became self-oriented over being other-oriented. The prophets were the mouthpiece against Israel, telling them where they had misstepped, telling them this is the outcome. God will abandon you. He will let you go down the path you want to go down, and it will not be pleasant. Our assumption that we're in league with the prophets simply because we were the brand Christian is just it's a non-starter. It isn't true question that is quite simple that has to be asked and answered. 
Are we the people who Jesus is talking about here? Are we the people who are committed to righteousness as Jesus is committed to righteousness? I mean, Jesus, this is so mind-blowing. Jesus violates Torah repeatedly. He works on the Sabbath. He goes and hangs out with people who are unclean on the same day. It's a Passover meal, and he goes on to temple grounds. Highly illegal activity, according to the law. He goes and hangs out with people who are broken and sinful and separated from the community of God, and then walks among the churched on the exact same day. I say church loosely. I understand church didn't exist in the day of Jesus. I wonder what it would look like for you and for me if we adopted this version of righteousness in our relationships, in our city, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, at our workplace. You know at your workplace that there are people being bullied left and right as adults. And it's very easy to overlook it. You know in your neighborhood there are families, individuals who are being discriminated against because of their singleness or because of their race, because of their orientation, because of their economic class. And you overlook it because it's too uncomfortable to look at and do anything about. You know that there are people who are part of the clubs and groups and, and kinds of activities that you participate in all the time, who are being hurt and harmed by the people around them. And we choose to overlook it because it's very uncomfortable to look at. See, our assumption that we are the right people, that we are the holy people, that we are the righteous people, has to be examined. It cannot stay an assumption. If we choose to follow the way of Jesus, then we follow the full way of Jesus. We choose to invite our neighbors into life, even when they don't fit what the rest of the neighborhood says ought to be there. We choose to stand in the gap between the person being harmed by our coworkers and the people who are doing the harm. We choose to include where others have chosen to exclude. We choose to love our neighbor the way that we love ourselves. So think on this. All of a sudden, there's a new weight to being persecuted. Frankly, I've had a hard spot in my heart for a long time thinking about, I mean, since I was a kid, as long as I can remember, being a Christian, going to church with my family, and having someone find out and do a little bit of harm to me because of it. You know where I don't have any, any angst at all? Are the times and moments when I've had the privilege to participate in the justice of God in my relationships, being a part of including someone who's otherwise excluded, to love someone who's otherwise unloved, and taking heat for that. See, I think there is something so virtuous about looking back over the years and seeing where people have rejected 
where people have harmed, people have persecuted, when they have done so because we have actually followed the way of Jesus. This is a challenging and tall order. I totally get it. But as Jesus puts a pin in this blessing section and moves into the next section, where he says, you are the light of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. This is what he has in mind. Blessed are you, or poor in spirit. Blessed are you who mourn over loss. Blessed are you who are meek. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light in this world. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for being that light and that salt. I will go one step first, further. It is a curse to be persecuted for any other reason than following the way of Jesus. And frankly, there's enough harm and hurt going around in our world. I mean, if you think about it, pain, pain knows no boundary. Pain does not discriminate. Pain is a human condition. We're really good at harming one another. Why would we continue on following a version of religiosity and being harmed for it when? The way of Jesus over here is saying, you know what? There's something better to be harmed for. There's something better to take heat for. A right cause of loving the people around us. Being deeply connected to our own morality so that we stop hurting people. As this comes to a close, this blessing section, what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to have you stand with me in just a moment. And I would like to read these blessings over you. Understanding full well that these are not fully true of us yet. That we are in the becoming stage of life. And my hope and my prayer is that these blessings are becoming true of who you are who I am, and collectively who we are. And as I read these this morning, I would invite you to examine where you are in the world, in your journey as a human, your journey with Jesus, your journey with this community, and asking the question, what next, God? What next can I lean into, or what next are you pulling me towards to make these increasingly true of me? So if you would stand with me, I'd like to read these over you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are you, who are persecuted because of righteousness, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who are before you. God, this morning, may this become increasingly true of us. That we are people who look increasingly like the kingdom of God. Here and now, in Portland, Oregon. God, may your kingdom come here as it is in heaven. We love you and pray in your name. Amen.